holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. church. It's an honor to be with you this morning and to uh, be able to participate in the ordinance of baptism together. Baptism is a way that you and I, uh, as believers, signify to the world and to our congregations that we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. So today we have seven total individuals, three in this service, four in the next, who want to proclaim to you the good news of Jesus Christ, that they have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior They love him, and they are going to follow him for the rest of their lives. Hi, my name is Charles Tidwell, and I am eight, and I am here to get baptized. I believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only God, and he died on the cross for all our sins and rose again. I want to get baptized because I want to show the world that I believe in Jesus Christ. Charles, on your profession of faith that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hi, I'm Jacob Wade, I'm 10 years old, and I would like to be baptized. I believe Jesus Christ saved us all from sin by coming down to earth and dying on the cross so that we can be saved from sin. I want to be baptized because I want to symbolize that I believe in Jesus and I would like to follow him for the rest of my life. Jacob, upon that profession of faith as Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hi, my name is Asher Helm, and uh, I'm nine years old, and I'm here to be baptized. I believe in Jesus because he died for our sins, and he rose three days later. I want to be baptized because I want to show every people that Jesus saved me. Asher, on that proclamation that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is uh, one of my favorite Sundays here at the church always when we have the baptisms. It's uh, wonderful to see these young people coming here to uh, profess their faith in uh, Jesus Christ as their Savior. And uh, to me, that's a a wonderful segue. We're just kind of uh, kids camp this last week. I know many of you went on kids camp, and it was actually the kids and, and the middle school. And I was out here uh, after a little bit after four o'clock on Thursday and saw six buses roll in and saw you know, hundreds of children and young people coming off of those buses, the 70 volunteers that were there. And uh, you know, to me, it was one of the most exciting things I've seen at our church in a long time. I talked with two young ladies out in the, the foyer, and uh, they both had uh, led two younger girls to faith in Jesus Christ, and they were just radiant and excited about what God was doing. And uh, to me, that's really what, what life is all about. It's what ministry, it's what we're all about here at Faith Bible Church. And see these young people here today coming and professing their faith in Jesus Christ. We just give thanks to God for that. And I want to thank Connie Goodson, all the children's staff, the seven volunteers that uh, went this week, and uh, Justin Kinsley and, and Addie uh, Zander and everyone who was a part of that. It's a, a real great momentum, I think, leading into um, our student ministry and early childhood space that they're going to be moving into here in, in the next few weeks, kind of in phase one of moving into the new building. So thank you all so much for that and for all that you did uh, for that uh, for us this last week. Uh, before we uh, begin the message this morning, I want to read a text I got this morning. We've been praying for Pastor Paul Blair. Uh, He's the pastor of Fairview Baptist just around the corner. Uh, Paul had throat cancer and 
went through all the treatment for that and has lost about 50 pounds and, and uh, still has, his throat's still very sore. But I've been praying for him a lot, and I know many of you have as well. So uh, I called Paul this week, and he sent me this, this uh, text. He said, uh, Mark, I have a PET scan tomorrow at 1140 at MD Anderson. Please ask your church to pray that I'm cancer-free. Uh, they have a surgery suite reserved for Wednesday morning to look around in my throat and do another biopsy if necessary. I pray that it's not necessary. Uh, thank you, Paul. And so we want to pray with him. I told him we'd pray for him today. So let's do that. And let's also pray for uh, Chris McLaughlin and Sarah, who are, his wife Sarah, who are still up at Craig Center, and uh, continue to pray for them. And also, uh, let's lift up our hearts this morning in prayer for our country as well, this uh, 4th of July week. So let's look to the Lord in prayer as we join our hearts. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, Father, we're needy people. And uh, Father, we thank you that you've met the greatest need that we all have, and that is our need for uh, salvation, to have our sins washed away. And uh, Father, we thank you in your word. You tell us that if you've uh, given your son for us, will you not with him freely give us all things? Father, you've given us the greatest gift. And so, Father, we can come and ask for the lesser gifts as well. So, Father, we come to you today on behalf of, of, of Pastor Paul. Uh, Lord, we thank you for how you've sustained him thus far and for the good results and, and, and good reports he's gotten. But, uh, Lord, just uh, for this week, we know this is heavy on Paul's heart and the heart of his church. And so, Lord, we pray that he'd get a wonderful report this week. There wouldn't need to be any biopsy taken. And so we just lift our brother and his wife, Cindy, and, and their family up to you. Uh, Lord, we pray for Chris and Sarah McLaughlin. We just pray for Chris that you'd give him strength, Lord. We, he needs physical strength just to be able to begin to move and to get around better. And we just pray for, for healing for Chris. Lord, we look to you. You're the, the great physician. We pray that you'd sustain them uh, spiritually as well and emotionally and give them hope and give them faith and trust in you. And Father, we look to you today for our nation. Um, we're, we're saddened by many things we see in our country, Lord, but there's wonderful things going on as well. Help us to, to not be people who are always negative about everything that's happening, but to look around and see the wonderful things that you're doing. But Lord, we need you to sustain our country. We, we need to, to trust in you and not our own ingenuity. We pray for our president, for those in Congress, for our judges and justices. Father, you, that you'd, you'd show us clearly in our country that we can't manage this great nation on our own. It wasn't founded on our own, and it won't be sustained by us. So, Father, help us at this birthday of our country this year to be a nation that more and more will give up on ourselves and look to you. And Father, help us as the believers, as your people in this culture, to shine as the lights and be the salt that you've called us to be. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you now. We pray as we open your word together that uh, you'd bless us through it, and that we pray as we leave here today that we'll go out in our lives and keep in step with the Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to begin uh, the final chapter of our study of the book of 1 Peter. So if you'll take your Bible and turn there with me. Uh, we're in chapter 5, and uh, we want to look at the first four verses of uh, this passage here this morning. And this uh, chapter opens with an, an encouragement and an exhortation to the elders of the church. The, the pastors are the elders of the church. So I've titled this message this morning, uh, Good Shepherds. Let me read uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock." And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So reads uh, God's inspired word. There's uh, several different forms of what I'm about to read to you that have kind of made their way around the internet for many years, but this uh, form of it, it's called the perfect pastor. It says, after hundreds of years, the perfect pastor's been found. He's the, he is the church elder who will please everyone. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. He condemns sin but never steps on anybody's toes. He works from 8 in the morning to 10 at night doing everything from preaching sermons to sweeping. He makes $400 a week, gives $100 to the church, drives a late model car, buys lots of books, wears fine clothes, and has a nice family. 
He's always ready to contribute to every good cause, whether to help and even helping panhandlers who drop by the church on their way somewhere. He's 36 years old, and he's been preaching for 40 years. He's tall on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of way, and handsome. He has eyes of blue or brown to fit the occasion and wears his hair parted in the middle, left side dark and straight, the right side brown and wavy. He has a burning desire to work with the youth, but he spends all his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor that finds him seriously dedicated. He makes 15 calls a day on church members, spend all his time evangelizing non-members, and is always found in his study if he's needed. Unfortunately, he burned himself out and died at the age of 32. <laughs> now, the perfect pastor doesn't exist, right? I think we all know that. Um, he certainly doesn't exist at this church. And I've never met one anywhere else. Uh, nevertheless, the, the New Testament teaches us that we need qualified pastors, elders to give leadership uh, to the local church. Uh, whatever it is, whether it's a family, whether it's a business, whether it's the church, success flows downward from leadership. We all know that. It's true in our country as well. Everything rises or falls on leadership. And so the presence uh, of godly leaders is essential to the church. Uh, one person said this I read. I'd never thought of it this way, but he said, the presence of a bad leader is worse than the absence of a good leader. And I think sadly that's true, and it's certainly true in the church. So gospel eldership is critical to the church. But an important question for us to ask as members of a local assembly of believers is what is a pastor and what should an elder or a pastor be like? And what should they do? What are we looking for in a leader in the local church? Now, before we get to our text this morning, I want to put this text in its context very briefly. Back up in chapter 4, verse 12, uh, Peter writes this, Beloved, uh, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. So the believers Peter's writing to were undergoing some persecution, and in the midst of those troubles, who would they look to for help and for encouragement? They'd look to their leaders. So right after talking in this section about persecution, he's going to talk about the leadership of the church. Also in chapter 4, verse 17, he says it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if judgment begins with God's people, then that judgment of God's people ultimately too will begin with the leaders. So he's talking here about leadership in the church. The leaders and the elders will be the first ones called to account. Now, as I was preparing the sermon this week, doing a lot of reading, one, one thing that stuck in my mind over and over again is I know that some of you, as I'm kind of introducing this message this morning, are going to be thinking, why should I care about this? You know, how does this apply to my life? I'm not an elder. Um, I don't ever aspire to be an elder. I'm never going to be an elder. So what practical value does this have or what relevancy does this have to my life? Well, let me give you just really quickly four reasons why this should be important to all of us. One is that if this is the standard for shepherds or leaders in the church, then this really in some ways is a benchmark for all of us. This is a, a good message this morning to measure your life by because this is a goal, the qualifications that are here is a good goal that all of us should aspire to. Uh, secondly, uh, you will become like your leaders. So you need to be very careful who you follow. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 6.40, a disciple is not greater than his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. You and I need to be very careful who we follow and who we listen to because the Bible says over time, that's what you're going to become like. When I made a decision to go to seminary, I was very careful about where I went and the men I wanted to put myself under because I knew that I was going to become like those men. And I tell you, I've, I've tried all my life to be like the men uh, that I studied under. That's the caliber that they were. But Hosea 4.9 says, and it will be like people, like priests. In other words, whatever the leaders are like, that's what the people are going to be like. So in, in many ways, the, the leaders in a church set the spiritual ceiling for that church. And, and leaders essentially reproduce themselves in the church. And so you can't lead people where you haven't been or where you're not yourself. And so we need real, righteous, responsible men to lead us in the church. 
Another reason this message should be important to all of us is if you move to another city and you're looking for a church someday, or maybe your children, adult children, move and, and go away somewhere else and they're looking for a church, you need to be able to help them to understand that the most important thing about any church, what they should ask is, who is in charge of this congregation and what are they like? It's the most important thing about a church. Again, everything rises or falls on leadership, and the church and the people there ultimately will be a reflection of the leaders. And then finally, one other point would be this. Every spring, we ask for feedback from members in our church of candidates to be elders in our church. And so when we do that every spring, you need to know what you're looking for. And you also need to hold those of us who are in leadership currently accountable. So you need to know what we're supposed to be doing to be able to hold us accountable to make sure we're fulfilling what God wants us to be doing. So with that in mind, let's look together at what the kind of men that God calls to lead in the church and what they're to be like and what they're to do. And you can see in your outline this morning, I've got three simple points, uh, the profile and the perils and then the prize for those who are leaders. Now, in verse 1 and 2, we open here with a profile of godly elders, pastors, shepherds in the church. It's a, a sketch of a shepherd. It's the profile or the portrait of a pastor. Now, let me make just four quick initial observations. One is that there are two offices in the local church, and those two offices are elder and deacon. Uh, we see that several places. We see it in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I mean, in Philippians 1.1, Paul writes, to all the saints in Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. So the elders or the overseers are those who are to oversee the church spiritually, what's happening. The deacons are those who carry out more practical functions within the church to relieve the elders of those responsibilities. So there's two offices, elders and deacons. Um, secondly, this is one of three main passages about elders in the New Testament. So if you want to look up more about this, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then go to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And those passages give a lot of the qualifications for elders. A third point that's very important is elder, the word elders is always plural. So eldership is a plurality. It is never just one man uh, who leads a church. It's a plurality. Eldership is a team effort. It's a team event, and elders need to be team players. Uh, back in Acts 14, 23, as Paul and others retraced their steps after the first missionary journey, it says they appointed elders in every church. In uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul calls the elders plural of the church at Ephesus. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells Titus, um, his young disciple, appoint elders in every city on the island of Crete where he left him there. So again, it's in the plural. So elders are a plurality. And here at our church right now, we have nine uh, men who are serving on our elder board. And then the final one is that elders must be males. They must be men. Now, I know that's not popular in our culture, and it kind of cuts against the grain of a lot that we see. But you look at passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the qualifications to be an elder is you have to be the husband of one wife. And also all of the pronouns that are listed there, they're all masculine pronouns. Now, what a lot of people do is they say, well, that was true back then, but you know, that was a patriarchal society, but things have changed now over time. And so you know, what was said back then really doesn't still hold good today. The difficulty with that argument is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul anchors what he says not in culture, but in the creation order. He goes all the way back to the creation order. Man was created first and then the woman. So it wasn't something cultural just for that day. It goes back to the creation uh, order. So leadership in the church, we believe here at Faith Bible Church, is uh, for males. Now, the focus here in chapter 5 in these first verses is on three terms that Peter uses. The term elder, the term overseer, and the term shepherd. And I believe those terms are synonyms. They're used interchangeably. Notice verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. Then down in verse 2, shepherd the flock. And then a little bit further, he says, exercising oversight. It's a, that's a verb form of a word that means to be an overseer. So there's one group of men 
one office of elder, but there are three different titles for this office that I think can be used interchangeably. And these three words give us a good profile of what this person's supposed to be like. Uh, the first word, the word elder, is the Greek word presbyteros. It's obviously that the word Presbyterians get the name of their denomination from. And the word elder, presbyteros, has to do with age or maturity. Uh, the focus is on the character of the person, that they're a mature believer. Uh, the word elder has its origins back in the Old Testament because in the nation of Israel, there were certain men selected on the basis of uh, their maturity and their wisdom to guide the people of God. And these respected, godly, mature men in the nation were called elders. And so that same office has really kind of been carried over, if you will, into the New Testament church. And one of the things it means is you need some miles on the odometer of life. So you've had some experience and seasoning and time to gain wisdom. Now, what's interesting is the Bible, though the New Testament, never gives an age limit. It doesn't say you have to be at least 30 or you have to be 40. I do remember when I was at Dallas Seminary, one of my uh, beloved professors, Dr. Stanley Toussaint, um, he would always say, don't ever put someone on the board who's under 30 years of age. He said, you know, Jesus didn't start his ministry till around that time, and nobody else should be on an elder board before that. And I think that's a, a good at least minimum, I think. But again, there's no statement in Scripture. It needs to be someone, though, who's have enough time and experience in life to gain some maturity and seasoning in life. Uh, the second term that's used is overseer, exercising oversight. That's the Greek word episkopos. And the word skopos means to scope or to look at something, and epi means over. So it means an overseer or one who overlooks or pays attention to what's going on. And this focus is not on the age of the man, but on his activity, what he does. He's to oversee or superintend the church, to, to know what's going on and to oversee it. And so elders will oversee the staff of the church. They'll oversee the finances, uh, the different ministries of the church. And it doesn't mean that they're in the weeds and all of those things and micromanaging everything that's happening, but they're overseeing it and having spiritual oversight of what's taking place. Uh, the third term that's used here is shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God among you. And while elders more his age and overseers the activity, shepherd is more the attitude. He's one who cares for the sheep and has the heart of a shepherd. Now, you all know there are a lot of metaphors for the church in the New Testament. The church is a body. Um, it's pictured as a bride. It's pictured as a building. In fact, back in 1 Peter 2, the church is a building, and each one of us are living stones within that building. But one of the common pictures for the church in the New Testament is that of a flock that is led uh, by shepherds. And shepherds do a lot of things, but I think if you wanted to narrow down the two main things they do, they feed and they lead. They feed the flock and they lead the flock. Of course, they protect the flock as well, which is important. But primarily, they feed and they lead because sheep spend most of their time eating and drinking. So it's the job of the shepherd to be leading the sheep to good pastures, to see that uh, they're well-fed and they're well-led. So a local church under godly leadership should be a well-fed, well-led body of believers. I have a book in my library called Portraits of a Pastor. It's written by several different authors, but Jared Wilson has a really good article, and he says this, and this is, he's writing this to, to pastors or shepherds in the church. He says, feed the sheep the gospel. The gospel is the only power of salvation for the Jew and the Greek. Pastors, every week your people gather together starving. They're weary and worn out, and for some of them, it takes all the faith they have just to come through the door. What is your job when they wander back into your pen on Sunday morning? Is it not to lay out the feast of the unsearchable riches of Christ? Is it not to present the true food of Christ and His matchless grace? They are hungry, brothers. They ask for bread. Do not give them stones." Lay out generously the new wine of salvation and the juicy meat of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's send our people out home fat with the gospel. Now, I love that. That's a beautiful statement, to, to send people home fat and well-fed on the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. So pastors, elders, overseers, those are interchangeable terms, I believe, in the New Testament church. Now, Whenever Peter says here, shepherd the flock of God, the idea of being a shepherd must have reminded Peter of what happened between him and the Lord Jesus back in John 21. Do you remember that? Peter had denied Christ three times. And the resurrected Christ, you remember he appears on the beach and he recreates the situation where Peter denied him. Peter denied Jesus three times standing by a fire out in the courtyard while Jesus was inside being tried. And on the beach there, Jesus has a fire going where he's cooking some fish. And Peter is there, and Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, tend to my lambs. And Jesus looks at him again and says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, shepherd my sheep. And then finally, Jesus a third time to match the three denials. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says to him, tend my sheep. So Jesus restored Peter as a shepherd of his flock. And the thing that strikes me about that narrative more than anything else, and it's been one of the key things that's on my mind constantly as a leader in the church, is that the most important thing to be a faithful shepherd for Jesus is to love Christ. It's the number one qualification. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. I think the most important qualification for anyone who's a leader in the church is love for Jesus Christ. If you wanted to say the one thing that's the, the, the secret sauce, if you will, of biblical leadership in the church of Jesus Christ, it's love for Him. In other words, to be a good shepherd, you have to love the good shepherd and know Him and, and be constantly growing in your love for Him. So I say that to anyone who aspires for leadership in any way. It's, a, it's, it's something I think about constantly in my own life. It's the barometer, really, for my life as a leader in this church. Think of it often. Do I love the Lord Jesus? Do I have a, a passionate love for Him? That's the ultimate qualification that I need. One other thing here in this passage that's striking to me. Notice he says in chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. And then down in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. So while shepherds are over the flock in one way, they're also among the flock because they're sheep too. I like the way Warren Wearsby puts it. He says, you'll notice the shepherd is both among and over. And this can create problems if the sheep don't understand because he's one of the sheep. The pastor is among the numbers of the flock, but he's called to be a leader. The pastor is over the flock. And he says the effective pastor needs both relationships. He must be among his people so that he can get to know them and their needs and their problems. And he needs to be over his people so he can lead them and help them and solve their problems. And so the pastors, the elders of the church need to be among the people but also in a unique way, we're to be over the flock as well. And that's one of the reasons why our elders here in our church are scattered pretty well among our adult Bible fellowships, so that they can be among the people and know different things that are happening and uh, prayer needs and minister to the people kind of in smaller units within the larger church. P.T. Forsyth, a, a great uh, Scottish theologian, said this years ago, you must live with people to know their problems and live with God in order to solve them. And that's what we need to be as leaders. You've got to live with people to know their problems, their heartaches. But you also have to live with God to know how to help them solve them. So that's Peter's kind of thumbnail profile here of, of a pastor in the church. Uh, the next thing we see here in this passage are what I call the perils of being a pastor. In both 1 Timothy and in Titus, they give a list of the character qualifications that elders must possess. And Peter here has a much briefer list, but the way he states it, he'll state a negative and then a positive. Notice in verse 2, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Not for money, but with eagerness. So 
he kind of states a negative or a pitfall or a danger that you don't want to fall into as an elder. And then he gives the positive side of that. So what I see here are really some perils and pitfalls for leadership. These are some of the things that can stand in the way of an, an elder being a good shepherd. So it's what we're not to do and then what we're to do. And again, if these things apply to elders, they really should apply to all of us as well. And I hope you'll apply them to your lives as we look at these. But the first thing is an elder must be humble and not haughty. And I get this in verse 1 where Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Now, Peter had lived with Jesus for three years. He'd seen Jesus with his own eyes. He'd touched Jesus Um, He'd seen the miracles Jesus performed. Peter himself even walked on water. I mean, Peter was the spokesman for the 12. He was an eyewitness of the resurrection. Yet Peter here never hints at his own position of authority. or There's no sense of pride of position with Peter. He simply calls himself here a fellow elder. So he's writing to the elders of these churches in Asia Minor, and he just says, look, I'm just a, a fellow elder and a co-laborer and a partner with you. And so we see here the, the humility of the Apostle Peter. And a religious ministry or a church is an easy place to construct a proud life if you're not careful. Now, pastors speak to a lot of people. Uh, They can live virtually unaccountable sometimes. Uh, Oftentimes, they're rarely questioned. And so pride can be a a dangerous peril and a pitfall for pastors. And that's especially true if the ministry grows and and maybe the fame and the influence of, of a pastor or a leader spreads. But one thing that's essential for elders and leaders in the church to possess is a humble spirit. What's fascinating to me is even out in secular culture today, they're recognizing that that's a very important feature for a leader. In, uh, in his book, uh, Good to Great, uh, Jim Collins uh, determines what distinguishes good companies from great companies. And he says it all hinges on having what he calls a level five leader. And here's how he describes a level five leader. It's an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. So even out in the secular world, they're saying, if you're going to be a really effective leader and have a level five company, that's what you need. He says that level five leaders channel their ego, their ego needs away from themselves into the larger goal of building a great company. It's not that level five leaders don't have any ego or self-interest. Indeed, they're incredibly ambitious, but their ambition is first and foremost for the institution, not for themselves. Then he goes on to say, leaders who are concerned for their company and its future, apart from their influence, are the ones capable of building a business that will outlast their leadership. So even in the secular world, this idea of being a, a humble leader, in fact, he says, having extreme personal humility is a necessary uh, qualification and proficiency. I I love uh, to read about uh, sermons by by old pastors from from days gone by. One of my favorites is Alexander White, great Scottish preacher. And his biography, the biographer said this about Alexander White, and I've never forgotten this. says, he took his pulpit seriously, and he took the church seriously, but he didn't take himself seriously. And I've always loved that. I think that was a secret to his effectiveness. He took the pulpit and the teaching of the Word of God seriously. He took the church seriously, but he didn't take himself seriously. And I think sometimes uh, we can take ourselves too seriously. And Peter here says, look, I'm just a fellow elder uh, with you guys. Now, what Peter does here now, these other pitfalls, he gives them in a series of three contrasts. Again, these three dangers, there's a negative and a positive. And really in these three things here that he mentions, some have seen what we might call the three main occupational hazards of being a pastor. And that is laziness and greed and and desire for power. In fact, uh, John Calvin saw in this passage here that it, it hits the three main vices of leadership. He called it sloth, desire for gain, and lust for power. But the first one here kind of deals with the the uh, idea that you could be lazy in ministry. He says, you exercise oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. In other words, that it's not a duty that you carry out, but it's a delight. 
So serving as an elder or a pastor should never just be a job that someone has to perform or some obligation. The idea, you know, somebody's got to do it. God wants men who want the ministry. Now, let me say something here that's a very important caveat. God wants men who want the ministry, but not men who want it too much. To me, over the years, and this hasn't happened in our church in a long time, but way back with people that none of you would know, there were people who were in our church that wanted to be leaders, but I felt like they wanted to be leaders too badly. You, you all know what I'm talking about, right? Somebody, it's a red flag when you sense with somebody that they really, really, really want to get in leadership, and you don't really know them that well, but they just have the, you know, just a hankering and a, a kind of a, an unhealthy desire for it. So you want people who want it, but you don't want people who want it too much to come in and kind of take things over and, and run everything, and it's kind of more about their own ego. So you want people that want it, but not too much. So God wants people who want to be involved in ministry and who are passionate about it, who, you know, use a, a term we use today, who have the juice for it, if you will, and the passion to serve Him. There's a story about a guy that was... Uh, in bed late one morning, and uh, he lived with his mother, and he hears the, she hears his alarm go off, and she hears the, the alarm stop, and then hears it several more times. He's obviously hitting the snooze button over and over again. And finally, she decides she'll go in and wake him up. So she wakes him up, and she says, look, you need to get up and get ready and, and get going this morning. And he says, well, give me three good reasons why I should get up. She said, well, first of all, it's Sunday, and you need to get dressed for church. Second, you're 43 years old, and you know better than to just lie there. And third, you're the pastor of the church, and they expect you to be there. That's an extreme example, obviously, but I mean, a lot of times people who are in ministry are not passionate about it. And when they're not passionate about it, the church is going to flounder under that kind of leadership. And I think one of the things that intensifies burnout in ministry is a lack of passion for it, a lack of willingness and desire. Uh, Bishop E.W. Johnson years ago said about people in ministry, some were called, some were sent, and some just went. And uh, we don't want people who just went. We want people who are called uh, to do the work of God. Elders must do their work with gladness and with delight and be passionate about it. Uh, the second thing is there to be eager, not greedy. Notice in verse 2, the end of the verse, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. In other words, they're to be sacrificial, not selfish. I, I love the way the old King James puts it. It says, not for filthy lucre, but with a sound mind. I mean, it has a way of kind of just sounds bad the way it's stated there. Now, it's not that elders don't receive money. Um, back in the early church, um, some elders were paid. It, it seems as if not all elders were paid. Uh, not all of them were in it uh, full time, uh, but at least some were paid. And uh, we see this back in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. It says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the workman is worthy of his hire. Um, it says here that uh, some are even worthy of double honor. But it's saying here in, in 1 Peter that money and external perks should not be the motivating factor for people to be involved in ministry. In other words, the shepherds are not to fleece the flock. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, it says about elders there, they're not to be a lover of money. Literally in the Greek, not a lover of silver. Um, Titus 1 verse 7 says, they're not to be fond of sordid gain. Because the problem is, if you love money and you're greedy, it's going to taint everything else uh, you do in life. So one qualification for elders is they're not to be someone who loves money or be greedy, but they're to be eager uh, to serve the Lord. Now, as I was studying this passage this week, I uh, came back from lunch and noticed a uh, Article, uh, 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 one of the periodicals we take is in my box there. Uh, we take World Magazine, uh, Christianity Today, several others. But I, I look through World Magazine, and uh, there's an article in there with a pair of tennis shoes at the top of it. And it says, a scandal afoot. And it's about a new Instagram account that this guy has uh, founded. It's called At Preachers and Sneakers. 
And what this guy has done is he's got a lot of these well-known preachers around the country, and there's pictures of these guys with these fancy sneakers, and he's looked up what kind they are and how much they cost. He's got like 160,000 followers now. And that's interesting. Um, one guy, I won't mention their names, but one pastor had on $1,045 St. Laurent Joe her boots. Well, I guess I said that right. Another guy had on a, a pair of red Air Yeezy 2S to sell for over $5,000. That's a pair of tennis shoes, by the way, man. I don't know how they can be that great, but anyway, $5,000. Um, another pastor had on FOG Jungles with a Neiman Marcus price tag of $995. Well, anyway, one guy had on a $1,300 Louis Vuitton bomber jacket. Because this guy's going out there taking pictures of all this and finding out how much it all costs. And uh, what he said is he sent emails to all these guys, and he never got responses from any one of them of them except one guy that said, how'd you get my email was the only responses that he got. But some of these guys are at pretty well-known places. But um, one guy too, there was one guy here. Oh yeah, he has, he, one guy at uh, a church wore a pair of $1,100 Gucci Tiger slippers to preach in. So I, I don't have ten, expensive tennis shoes on here this morning. Uh, if I did, had them, I wouldn't wear them today. I could promise you that. But and, and again, I'm not saying that all these guys are doing it for the money that are in this article. This is kind of a, an interesting thing this guy's doing, kind of getting all these followers. But it just highlights the fact, though, that we have to be careful in what we do, that the motivation for what we do is never to be seen by anyone as being money, but it's an eagerness and a delight to serve the Lord. Uh, finally, the fourth pitfall here with its corresponding positive is elders and leaders are to be examples or be exemplary, not domineering. Uh, the pastorate and, the, and eldership in a church can bring an enormous amount of authority. Uh, people listen to what you say. Uh, they mold their lives and they base their decisions on, often on, on, on the teaching they receive and counsel they receive. And so you can, can wield incredible power over people. And really, when you think about it, all the cults and false religions are out there are usually founded on some uh, authoritarian, controlling kind of leadership. But Peter here says, don't lord it over the flock, but be an example to them. And really, he's just echoing here the words of Jesus all the way back in, in Mark chapter 10. Jesus was talking to his disciples there as they were kind of vying for different levels of, of leadership. And Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, says, calling them to himself, he said, you know those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Then I love this, but it is not to be this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first shall be the slave of all. For not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. So Peter's just echoing what Jesus says here about servant leadership and not lording it over others. Uh, we need leaders who serve and servants who lead, uh, not people who are greedy for power. So in other words, we don't want to be heavy-handed in leadership or, or pull rank on people, a rule by power, intimidation, or manipulation, but to be tender, caring shepherds of God's people. There's a, a book I read years ago by Chuck Swindoll called Church Awakening. I'm sure many of you read that. But he has a, a little statement in here, a little story he tells. And I've never forgotten this story, probably because I'm a pastor. But he says this, he says, many years ago, I pastored a small church. While serving there, I encountered an extremely difficult person in a position of leadership. He had been very influential in my coming to the church, and I discovered he intended to remain influential after I arrived. I noticed the longer I was there, the greater the sense of strain grew between us. When I would attempt to resolve the tension, he verbally stiff-armed me. He didn't want it to work out. In fact, he even denied we had a conflict. I began to feel increasingly more alone and intimidated. I had no advocate. I had no one to whom I can turn because the elders felt everything was fine and dandy. Finally, after several more incidents that only intensified the pressure, he showed up, my, he showed up at my study one cold winter day. We were all alone at the small church where he, when he marched in, leaned over my desk and said, I want to show you something you don't know. And he opened his coat and said, I carry a gun. 
To my surprise, he pulled it out of its holster, popped the butt of the weapon against his hand, and out fell six shells. I keep it loaded, he said. Just thought you should know that. Swindoll says, I wanted to say, well, thank you. But then he says, he reloaded the pistol in front of me, snapped a bullet in the chamber, looked me in the eye, and said, don't you ever cross me. And he walked out, got up and walked out. And then Swindoll says, that, friends and neighbors, is what I call a threat. I don't know if you've ever been, I don't know if I've ever been more scared in my life, including my hitch in the Marine Corps. Believe it or not, this man was in leadership at our church. In fact, he was the main leader there. Now, this man was not lording it over the flock, at least in this case, but actually over another elder. But you can imagine how that must have come through in his leadership in the church. Now, I realize that's an extreme example, but leaders in the church are called to be overseers, not overlords of the church. And he highlights this by saying, don't lord it over those allotted to your charge, those who've been entrusted to you. So the flock has simply been entrusted to the elders or the leadership for a period of time. They're just temporary stewards of it. They don't own it. It's been allotted to them uh, by the Lord. And so the elders of the church are not to be overlords in the church, but they're to be examples to the flock. They're to show the people in the church how to live a godly life. And most of you probably know that you, know, you drive cattle but you lead sheep. You go out before them and you lead them. You don't go behind them and drive them. And sheep do their best when they're released, not when they're controlled, and whether they're, when, they're, when they're loved and not shamed. And so a good shepherd leads the flock by example. A good shepherd is someone who, who knows the way, who shows the way, and who goes the way I'm in his own life. Certainly not perfectly, but in a way that people can follow. So we need men who, are, who offer a mature example of seasoned insight and wisdom. And under this kind of leadership, people in a church will grow and mature. And these are the kinds of men who will mature a ministry over a period of time. I love a statement that was made about Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. Someone who knew him well said this, his life was a life worth looking into. And that's what we all should strive to be like. We should strive to live in such a way that our life would be a life for others uh, to look into and ultimately to follow. So that's the profile of a pastor, of uh, the perils of a pastor. And then finally in verse 4, we have the prize for a pastor. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the prospect or the reward. Someday the Lord Jesus is coming. And it may be soon. And some of the last words of Jesus in the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus said, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to every man according to what he's done. Now, every one of us sitting here this morning who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, one of these days when he comes, we're going to stand before him in an event called the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to give an account of how we lived our life as a believer what we did with the opportunities and the talents and the abilities that God has given to us. Every one of us is going to give an account. But one group that will be there are leaders of the church. And there's a special reward that he will give to those who've carried out uh, that leadership faithfully. And he calls it here the unfading crown of glory. He's the chief shepherd those who serve him in the church are simply under shepherds, under his authority. When the chief shepherd comes, the one that we ultimately desire to please, those faithful elders and pastors and overseers will get the unfading crown of glory. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this this morning. I'm actually anticipating a, a series when we finish 1 Peter of looking at this future event called the judgment seat of Christ and looking at the idea of heavenly rewards. And so I don't want to talk about this really in great detail this morning, but there are five different crowns that will be given as rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And the first four of those, every believer is eligible for, but this is one crown that is reserved for faithful leaders in the church, and it's called the unfading crown of glory. Because back in the games of that day, when you won a, a, an event, you received a crown, but it was made of uh, like oak leaves or, or ivy or parsley, and it was, would fade and would uh, wither very quickly. 
But he's saying to to elders in the church, under shepherds, the chief shepherd, he's going to give you an unfading uh, crown of glory. And of course, most of you know that Revelation 4 tells us that we will take those crowns that we receive and that we will cast those crowns at the feet of the one who wore the crown of thorns for us. So all the glory will ultimately go to him. Jesus Christ wore a crown of thorns so that those who serve him can someday wear a crown of glory. I mean, what a Savior we have. How gracious, how merciful He is, and how generous He is. Let me ask as we close this morning, are you part of God's flock? Are you one of God's found sheep? You become one of God's sheep. You become a a member of His flock by trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, who became the Lamb of God, who laid down His life for us, and took it back up again, and was raised from the dead. So if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, that's what you need to do this morning. You you need to have your sins washed away. And the only one who can do that is Jesus Christ, that good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. So as we pray, why not call out to him this morning and receive the free gift of forgiveness and of life that he offers to you uh, through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the one who wore the crown of thorns for us so that we can someday wear a crown and cast it at his feet. Father, I thank you for those of us who are leaders in this church that Jesus wore a crown of thorns that we can someday, by your grace, wear a crown of glory. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's not part of your flock, who's not one of your found sheep, that they would come into your flock this morning by trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They believe in him, the good shepherd, who laid down his life for the sheep. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Father, I pray for Faith Bible Church. I thank you for the leadership that you've given this church through the years, uh, for the the elders who've poured out their their hearts and their time and their energy uh, to oversee this flock. I pray for our, our current elders now, Lord. I thank you for each man. Pray your blessing upon them and upon their families. Lord, I pray that we can be examples to this flock and and lead Faith Bible Church to be all that it can be for your glory. Uh, Lord, our our world around us has so many problems and difficulties, and we know that when the the world's at its worst, the church needs to be at its best. We want to be at our best, Father, and we want our leaders to be at their best. So we commit each of them to you. And Lord, I pray that as a church that you'll maximize the, the gifts and the talents and the abilities of every person here so that this ministry can flourish and be everything you want it to be, and that someday when we stand before you at the judgment seat, that we can receive great reward from you, our great God and Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.